You are listening to audio from the Mariner campus of CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this message helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus. Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. It's good to see you. If we, uh, if we haven't had a chance to meet, if you're new here, uh, my name is Sam. I get to serve as one of the pastors and leaders. It's such a privilege to get to gather together and to worship our God and King in community, to build friendships and to study scripture. Um, I, I really love our church. It is such a gift to get to serve as a pastor here. Uh, if you have a Bible, would you turn with me to uh, the book of Luke chapter 23? If you don't have a Bible, you can use the, the one in the pew in front of you or uh, you can turn there on your phone, but Luke chapter 23. And this morning, we're gonna be continuing a series that we kicked off last Sunday, uh, looking at the, the, the final seven statements from Jesus on the cross. Sort of the final words that Jesus spoke before he died on the cross for the sins of the world. And so this series is going to take us through the entire season of Lent, that kind of 40-day period that leads us up into Good Friday and Easter Sunday. And the desire of this series, the whole reason that we're doing it is, is our hope, our prayer, is that as a church community, we could just kind of linger at the foot of the cross. That rather than rushing past the cross on our way to the resurrection and the empty tomb, that we would sit here for a sec, for a long sec, for six weeks, that we would sit here and reflect on the cross, that we would look, together that we would look at Jesus, our crucified Savior, and ponder the significance of all that he's done for us. So if you're willing and able, would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? Last week, we looked at the, the first statement, which is, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Today, we're going to unpack some words that come just after those, that declaration of forgiveness. Let's pick up in, uh, in chapter 23, verse 32 and 33, and then we'll jump ahead to verse 39. I'll lead you through it. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Skip ahead to verse 39. One of them, the criminals who hung there, hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God? He said, since since you and I are under the same sentence, we are punished justly. We are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, and this is our second saying. Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. You can take a seat. Well, crucifixion. Crucifixion was for the scum of the earth. It was literally the worst and most shameful those who were considered to be worthless, whether they be slaves or, or those who were maybe violent or dangerous, rebels against Rome. It was the most extreme way that one person could say to another person or to demonstrate to another person, you are worthless, like less than human. Like we don't even have a comparison to crucifixion in our culture. We would never treat an animal the way that, that these crucified criminals were treated. I mean, firstly, there was this, it was excruciatingly painful Nails hammered through your hands and your feet. 
And if you didn't bleed out and die as a result of, of, of the nails in your hands, if you actually, you were most likely to die as you were crucified from exhaustion or suffocation, as you struggled to hold yourself up for hours, nails ripping through your skin, gasping for air. It was, it was a cruel, cruel way to die. But beyond even that, beyond the pain itself, crucifixion was this clear message to every onlooker, to everyone who passed by, mess with Rome and we'll nail you to a cross. Like, step out of line, and this will be you up here on the cross. See, living on this side of history, it, it, it's, it's so easy for us to look at the beautiful cathedrals that are marked by crosses on their steeples, or the gold earrings and necklaces with the emblem of the cross on them, or even, even crucifixion scenes that present this clean and sanitized version of Jesus on the cross. I went to Catholic school growing up. And there was a statue of Jesus on the cross that was in our chapel, and it was this pale white Jesus with a clean towel wrapped around him, and he almost looked like he was in this light and delicate sleep. Like, if you didn't know the story of the crucifixion, you could almost mistake him for a tourist on the beach who was working on his tan, laying against a, a cross-like figure. All that to say, living in the 21st century, it's so easy for us to miss the shocking and provocative nature of this moment that the God of the universe would be nailed to a cross. The cross represented weakness and shame, failure. But here's what I've been pondering. Is there something about Jesus' death on the cross that's important for us to see? Like, is there something about the cross beyond his death itself that the cross communicates about the nature of God, about the depths that he would go to save us? I think so. Let me set this scene a little bit in Luke chapter 23. By the time we get to verse 32, which is what we just read together a moment ago, Jesus has already been on trial. He, he's been beaten and bruised, and then he carried his cross, surrounded by Roman soldiers and crowds of people who were yelling and mocking him, such throwing insults at him. Jesus was forced to carry his, his cross outside the city gates to a hill called Golgotha, which is literally translated the skull. When I was in Israel a couple of years ago, I, I got to go to the exact spot that most scholars believe this event took place. And it was, it was pretty emotional to stand there in that spot and, and imagine, to kind, of, to kind of replay what that moment would have been like, that scene as we were right there in Israel. It was, it was roughly a, a mile or a mile and a half outside of Jerusalem. And that distance from the city is an important note because crucifixion was a gruesome and shameful act and so it would never happen within the city gates. As a source of entertainment, people would, would often follow the mob outside the city where they would watch the event take place and then they'd go back to their clean and tidy neighborhoods and continue on with their lives. And so Jesus was, was hung up on this cross on a hill called Golgotha, but he wasn't crucified alone. Luke 23 says that the crucifixion happened between two criminals one on his right and one on his left, that Jesus was actually killed in, in the presence of in the company of thieves. And you know, I grew up in church and, and, and I've heard the telling of this story over and over again, dozens of times. I, I've read the story, I've taught the story. I've had the story taught to me, even on flannel graphs as a little kid. But until more recently, I actually never paid too much attention to the guys on the other crosses in this scene. I kind of saw them as a footnote. Like, yeah, I guess there were two other criminals, two guys who, who were crucified there too. But, but I actually came to realize that unlike other details in the story, that these two criminals make it into all four tellings of this story, of this scene in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 
And they actually get significant stage time. Like in Luke's gospel alone, there's six verses committed to conversation with these guys. So it appears that they're not just extras in the story. They seem to be important characters, essential even, in understanding Jesus' final moments on the cross. So here's what I want to ask. Why did these guys make it into the story? Why are we talking about these criminals 2,000 years later? What's the deal with the criminals on those surrounding crosses? Well, first, they fulfill this Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah. Nearly 1,000 years before Jesus was even born, Isaiah the prophet wrote that the promised Messiah would be numbered among the transgressors. In other words, that Jesus would be counted as one of them, as one of those people, as a transgressor, an outcast, a fool. Fleming Rutledge, who's a pastor and author, she writes, Jesus wasn't numbered among the politically connected. He wasn't numbered among the good, outstanding pillars of the community. Jesus suffered outside the city walls, away from the good neighborhoods, cast out from the company of decent people. And if you think about it, it's, it's actually quite fitting that Jesus would die in, in, in the company of outcasts because Jesus spent pretty much his entire ministry around these kinds of people. So many of Jesus' early followers were, were those that other people had overlooked or forgotten, the unsophisticated, people that others had, had scoffed at and did whatever they could to avoid. Actually, on a number of occasions, Jesus was considered, assumed guilty by association because of who he hung out with. He was called a drunkard and a glutton, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, and to be clear, that was not a compliment. See, Jesus spent his days building friendships with these kinds of people, the kinds of people that most of us, if we're honest, that most of us try to avoid. But Jesus loved them with no asterisks. They weren't some charity project for him. There was no condescension that he had towards them. He spent his days eating and drinking and laughing and teaching with people who were so different from him, rallying them together as family, sitting around a table with the poor and the prostitute, with the terrorist and the tax collector, people that others had forgotten and some that others wouldn't even be caught dead with, but Jesus called them friends. And so with that in mind, it's very fitting that he would die among these same kinds of people, the lowly and the outcasts. And so I, I want to zero in on that conversation that Jesus has with the two criminals on either side of him. You know, if, if, if we were there in that moment that day, if we were watching all of this take place, it probably would have actually been pretty hard for us to, to make out the conversation that was happening up on the cross. I'm thinking of the noise of the crowd that was yelling and saying curse words and scoffing. There's probably the tears of his mother and other disciples who were wailing and crying as they watched Jesus on the cross. But I want us for a moment to lean in and to imagine the moment and then to listen to this profound exchange that Jesus has with these men as they're hanging beside him. Both of them have, have pretty different responses to Jesus, dramatically different responses. But here's what I wasn't expecting as I spent more time in this text. As I sat through with this section of scripture over this last few weeks, I found that I could actually identify with both criminals. The first criminal, he, he starts by throwing insults at Jesus. And I imagine in that time that they hung there on the cross that he probably said lots of different things in those few hours that they hung there together. But the statement that makes it into Luke's telling of the story is verse 39 where he yells at Jesus. He says, aren't you the Messiah? then save yourself and us. 
And you know, while those words were probably meant to taunt Jesus and belittle him and ridicule him, I think there's also something very human about his response in the midst of pain. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know if, 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 you've, if you've ever been there, but, but I think about my own life. There's been moments of, of desperation before God where I've cried out to him and actually said some pretty similar things. Like, if you're really there, God, then show up for me. Like, if you're really real, God, then, then, then bail me out of this situation I'm in. I don't know if you've ever been in that kind of place before. Maybe call it a season of unanswered prayer or a tragedy of some sort. If you have, then I'd imagine you can have at least a little bit of, 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 of sympathizing with that first criminal as, as he experienced incredible pain up there on the cross. He's hanging there and he shouts, if you're really the Messiah, Jesus, if you are who you say you are, then save us. Like, don't just hang there. Do something. And I actually don't think that it's bad to cry out to God in desperation like that, to bring him our pain and our frustration and to share what we really feel. God can take it. We see all throughout the Psalms really real, honest dialogue with God. David the psalmist, he models this, this sort of authenticity over and over again through the various poems and songs that are in that book where, where he says, where are you, God, in the midst of my sorrow? See, I would go as far as to say that God actually desires raw, honest dialogue with us. He's after relationship. He's after intimacy. He already knows the depths of what's in our hearts, but he wants to hear it from us. Real relationship is built on honesty. And so on the one hand, I can absolutely empathize with this criminal who's longing for Jesus to show his power in this moment and rescue him from his current situation. But there also seems to be something else that's going on in the criminal's heart. The criminal seems to assume, along with the crowd that surrounded them that day, that if Jesus didn't do something, if he didn't call down angels to rescue them and, and take them off the crosses, if there wasn't some great display of power in that moment, then how could this guy be the Messiah? How could this guy who's on the cross, how could he save the world? He's obviously just another messianic pretender. And I think it's because the criminal thought that he understood the will of God, that God would never hang up on a cross. Because what kind of God would do that? What kind of God would be defeated by death like that? Like this moment had to mean that Jesus wasn't who he said he was, that, that the fact that he was up there on the cross meant the end of his mission, right? Well, no. See, this is where we see the greatest paradox of the Christian story, that only a dying savior can rescue us from death. I want you to see this. In enduring the cross, Jesus was doing something so much bigger, so much grander than anyone could have imagined. The miracle was so much bigger than what the criminal was requesting in that moment. It wasn't just about a momentary relief from pain. Jesus was emptying death of its power once and for all. He was conquering death by death. The first criminal missed it. He had a front row seat to experience God's greatest act of love towards his creation, the redemptive mission in action but he missed it. That being said, the second criminal, as he looked at Jesus, he seemed to have this entirely different perspective. Same exact moment. They're both living this moment, but what they saw couldn't have been further from one another. The second criminal looked at Jesus with eyes of faith. Look at verse 41, if you have it in your Bibles in front of you. 
He says, we're punished justly. He's talking to the other criminal. He says, we're punished justly for what we're, get, for what we're getting, what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said to Jesus, he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. There's a lot of significance in those words from the criminal on the cross. So let's just sit here for a sec. For starters, in the Old Testament, when God remembered someone, it had distinct meaning. It wasn't just to recall. It wasn't just to, to, to think about that person. Or to bring to mind. It wasn't like remembering to text someone back that you'd forgotten to text or, or to, to remember something on your to-do list. That, that wouldn't mean that much. But no, what, when God remembers all throughout Scripture, he doesn't just think about this thing. For God to remember us actually means that he will act on our behalf, that he'll act in power to save. And so to paraphrase what the criminal is saying in that moment, he's saying, remember me, Jesus. He's saying, act on my behalf. Jesus, would you save me? Include me in your coming kingdom. It's this recognition of who Jesus is and the power that he has to save. See, somehow that second criminal was able to see something that day that others seemed to miss. As he looked at Jesus hanging on that middle cross, he saw the reigning king. He saw the one who, even in his dying state, had the power to determine his destiny. Remember me, he said, when you come into your kingdom. See, the criminal realized that Jesus' death that he was dying was actually for him. That somehow, in some way, this man on the middle cross was more than just a man. That he had power to save and to forgive sin and that he himself held the keys to the kingdom of God and could offer eternal life. Let me ask you this. Do you see yourself as someone that Jesus died for? Because if the scene at the cross, if it tells us anything, it's that it's never too late to turn to Jesus. And there's no one that is too far gone, no one that is too bad, that's too late to get in on the scandalous grace of God. And remember, this thief, he wasn't just a guy who shoplifted like a Snickers bar at Walmart or cheated on his taxes. Crucifixion was reserved for the worst kind of people. This guy was like bad to the bone. And yet because he recognized the saving power of Jesus, because of his faith, because he reached out in those final moments and asked Jesus for help, to ask, act on his behalf, Jesus saves him. He promises him paradise. More on that in a moment. But I just want to say, no matter where you are or what you have done, and I'm talking in your past, I'm also talking in your present. Yesterday, today, Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient for you. And his death on the cross, it wasn't just for the world in a general sense. It wasn't just for the entire cosmos. But it was for you, personally. See, as Jesus hung up on the cross on that hill called Golgotha, he looked across time and space, and he saw you. He was crucified for you and for me. And he offers us that same promise of forgiveness, of, of paradise, extended to the, to, the, to the criminal on the cross that day. Man, I'm praying that there are people in this room today who maybe get that for the first time, who right now experience the unconditional love of the Father that's displayed on the cross. See, whether you've been to church your entire life or this is your very first time here this morning, I, I have a friend who, uh, who grew up in this church, 
grew up as part, his family would come to this church, and, and he knew about Jesus cognitively in his mind. But, but a few months ago, he had this profound encounter with Jesus during communion one Sunday. And uh, it wasn't through a, a sermon, it was through communion. It was through remembering the death of Jesus that he experienced the love and forgiveness of God in this profound way that shook him to the core. And he gave his life to Jesus that day, surrendered his life to him. It is never too late to come to Jesus. And it's as simple as doing what we see the criminal do on the cross, saying, remember me, save me, act on my behalf, Jesus. I receive your sacrifice from me. Okay, with the time that I have remaining, I want to look at Jesus' promise of paradise. I wonder, what do you think of when you hear the word paradise? Today you will be with me in paradise. What is Jesus talking about there? Maybe it's the excess of rain that we've had in this last season. But when I hear paradise, I immediately start to think about a vacation in Hawaii or Mexico, or a resort somewhere, somewhere in the sun, anywhere with sun. Uh, when I hear paradise, it, it, it stirs this desire in me to escape the stresses and the busyness of my everyday life and just rest, even to just get a few moments away of rest, sitting at a pool, but under an umbrella, of course, because I burn super easily, sipping on a cold drink, kids splashing in the pool beside me, this, this escape for a few weeks at least from the realities and the stresses of day-to-day -day life. And maybe your idea of paradise is, is different than that. Maybe you think about a camping trip or, or Disneyland or I don't know. But the paradise that Jesus is talking about here, that Jesus has planned for us, goes so far beyond any of our wildest dreams. And just this momentary relief that we can get on a vacation to the Bahamas. No, Jesus is promising a paradise that goes on forever. And it's less about escaping something bad and more about entering into something that's really good and beautiful. See, the future that Jesus promises is not just freedom from pain and suffering. It is that. But it's also about participating in something beautiful, enjoying perfect peace and this abundant life with God. Here's the bottom line. For the Christian, death is not the end of the story. That's what Jesus promises right here in the text, that death is this doorway into resurrection life. And, and I get that from the outside looking in. It can feel like death is the one journey that we have to take in life that's, that's by ourselves, that's alone. But Jesus promises right here that he's with us through it all. And elsewhere, he says that he will never leave us or forsake us, that like the criminal on the cross, as we breathe our last breath on earth, we immediately enter the presence of God. Jesus says, today, you will be with me in paradise. This promise of paradise, in a lot of ways, it parallels the Garden of Eden, the, the original paradise in Genesis chapter two, where God created this, this garden that was both beautiful and functional. It was perfect. It was like aesthetically breathtaking, but it was also able to nourish human beings. It was this place of complete harmony between God and, and his creation. And in that garden, the first humans had, had nothing to hide from each other. There was no shame or jealousy or anxiety. There was just joy and delight with one another and with God. And at the, at the center of that paradise, at the center of the garden was God, calling out to his image bearers, walking and talking with them in the garden. It's this picture of, of perfect communion. This is how it all began. And in the end, Revelation gives us this picture of where it's all going to go as God restores and renews all things. So, but here's, here's what's clear in Scripture. The Bible teaches that as we breathe our last breath on earth, we awake in the presence of God. 
And if we die before Jesus returns, I suppose that there might be a measure of waiting, waiting for Jesus to put an end to the evil and injustice in the world, waiting for him to renew all creation, waiting for our resurrected bodies in the age to come. But if we're with him, if we awake in his presence, I have no doubt that the waiting will pass quickly in the presence of our Savior. Okay, let me circle back and end with this last question. What do we have to do in order to uh, enter the paradise that Jesus has on offer? What do we have to do to experience that paradise? It's actually a bit of a trick question. It's actually not about anything that we do. It's about what Jesus has done for us. Alistair Begg, who's a, a Scottish preacher, he talks about what that moment must have been like for the criminal as he entered into paradise. And he's kind of being a little bit silly with it as he describes it, but he says, well, what would it have been like as he encountered Michael the archangel? And Michael might have said to the criminal, like, what are you doing here? And maybe that thief that day said, I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? And then maybe the angel started to quiz him. Like, okay, well, are you clear on the doctrine of, of justification by faith? No, I've never heard of it. Have you been baptized? No. Did you take next step and go to community group and give 10% of your income to the church? No, none of that stuff. Then by what merit are you here? Like, on what basis are you here right now? And, you know, I imagine that the, that the criminal may, may have just shook his head in disbelief and said, the man on the middle cross said I could come. That's the only right answer. The man on the middle cross said I could come. See, as soon as we think that we're made right with God because of what, what, what we have done, because I believed, or because I cleaned up my act, or, or because I lived a good enough life and I helped people, or because I, if we speak about our salvation in the first person, we have completely missed the essence of the gospel. The only proper response for the criminal on the tree, the only response is in third person. Because he, because Jesus, this is so important. We have to keep the cross at the center of our Christian life. And that's why we're lingering here for the next few weeks. Because as soon as we forget the cross, as soon as we forget that, that, that the cross, that it's Jesus who did the saving, then we start to add grace plus Grace plus works equals salvation. And when that happens, we either fall into this deep despair or we end up with a lot of arrogance. We either fall into despair thinking that we could never face God because of our sins and our shortcomings, that we could never measure up, that our sin defines us, that God is mad at us, or when things are looking good, when everything's up and to the right, it's easy for us to get, start to get arrogant and start to subtly believe that, that the cross is necessary for those people, but I think I can do this one. The cross is necessary for some, but I'm actually doing pretty good. But it's all grace. We have to preach the gospel to ourselves every single day, remembering that we are saved by grace. That's what we see in Jesus' interaction with the criminals, this, this, this undeserved, unmerited, scandalous grace, that there's nothing we can do to earn our way to God. We bring nothing to the table. It is only through the sacrifice of Jesus that we're made clean. I want to invite the band to come back up. 
there's a, there's a great old hymn. It's called Rock of Ages. And uh, if you've been around our church for any length of time, you've probably heard this song before. Uh, but there's a few verses of that song that I think beautifully sum up the wonder of the cross and all that we've been talking about for the last 30 minutes. So as we close, I want to read some of the verses from that song, and then we're actually going to sing these words together. Here's what the songwriter says. This is old English because it's an old song. It's an oldie but a goodie. Here's what it says. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill the law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Let's take a moment to pray together. God, we're so thankful for your grace. We're so undeserving of the kindness that you've shown us, but because you love us and you're just that good, you died for us to save us. So I just think about people who might be in this room who haven't yet experienced this extravagant love of God as seen on the cross. God, I just pray that you would give courage in this moment for those people to step out as the criminal did and say, remember me, <laughs> act on my behalf. I receive your sacrifice for me. If you're in that place this morning, if you find yourself wanting to respond to Jesus, scripture tells us very clearly that it's as, as easy as, as believing in your heart that Jesus is Lord God raised him from the dead and you're saved. It's receiving what he's done for you. And so if you want to receive him today, you just pray along with me in your own heart. Say, God, I choose to, to receive what you have done for me. I recognize that it's not what I have done. It's not my ability to, to be good or to do what's, what's right in my own eyes, but it's only by your blood that I'm saved. And so as we look at you, Jesus, on the cross, we receive your finished work on our behalf. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message. If you've been listening to our sermons, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.